since 2020, since COVID, before that, never looked back to look forward. But because our whole cultural landscape changed in 2020, I now do just show a little bit of, this is what happened in the last 200 years to get us to COVID. These are the changes. This is where we're going because of COVID. It's all one slide. And show that our aspirations have changed, our relationships and our values have changed. And so because of that, this is the why. So what does this mean? And asking, you know, the questions that we're now asking were things we weren't asking before 2020. So underpinning all of it is basically, what does it mean to be human? How does this new value system affect the commodity that used to be our value system, which perhaps was having a time of having money, having a job, having a better job? It's gone into knowledge and it's gone into kindness and comfort over competition. So now we're looking at a very different landscape for brands, for people, for everyone. Hi, this week's interview is a wee bit different from normal, as I welcome back previous guest, food futurologist and director of Bellwether Food Trends, Dr. Morgan Gay. Morgan explores food and eating from a social, cultural, economic, branding and geopolitical perspective. She also consults food companies on developing new products and ideas, writing trend reports for forecasting sites to PR agencies and ad agencies. Morgan was staying with me during this year's South by Southwest, where she was presenting Trend Table, her latest trends presentation and title of her upcoming book. Therefore, I used this opportunity to have her share some of the trends she's been witnessing. Now, besides discussing some of these macro trends, we also discussed when we first met back in London in 2008, when I was running a digital team at McCann London. I was trying to persuade the agency to explore working with innovators and startups and founders on co-developing products and brands and sharing IP. That's how I met Morgan. And we reflect on how we took an idea she developed for a raw cacao product and developed it into an edible beauty brand prototype, which was way ahead of its time. And then how our life choices set us on very different paths that ultimately led us to miss the opportunity to build and bring to market what could have been a totally groundbreaking product. This conversation was somewhat cathartic for me and it will hopefully provide some encouragement to anyone that's working to execute an idea to just persist, take action and at the very least bring your idea or bring your product to market. Now, over to Morgan. Morgan. Hello. (laughs) Welcome to Austin. Welcome back to the Impossible Network. Yeah, gosh, it's been a while. It has been. But a bit more sort of freewheeling today. Yeah. Uh, Just having a, a chat while you're here for you to give a little download on what you were talking about at South by Southwest. Yeah. Which would be great. Um, and, but before we do, um, and given a conversation we're having the other day, and I was reflecting on the journeys that people go on and the mistakes they make, the lessons they learn, the successes they have, and reflecting on that, I got thinking about probably what would be one of the big lessons that I've learned over the years, which was something that we worked on together when we first met, um, which was a essentially a, an idea to launch a raw cacao product. Yes. And I think it's worth talking about because I think there's some good insights in that experience that are it's worth describing and breaking down in terms of the mistakes we make and the opportunities we miss and the lessons we learn from those those situations. 
and uh, from that these insights maybe not make the same mistakes or errors of judgment maybe we should just start with when we first met in around 2007 2008 i was running essentially a what was a creative technology digital team at McCann, and I was trying to persuade the agency to invest more in its own IP, but also to work with founders and startups and co-developing products uh, where we could take co-ownership of rather than just doing advertising ideas for clients. And in having met you and being introduced by someone I work with, um, when got talking to you, you started, uh, you told me about what you were working in food futurology, but also developing your own f healthy superfood range. And then you mentioned this thing called raw cacao. And I was like, what? What's raw cacao? So perhaps before we talk about where we took it and the point to which we took it before walking away, could you just explain what you were developing? Yes. Yeah, so at the time, I was understanding the power of raw foods and how they affected our health and the actual essential properties within them. And what I found was that cacao, which is raw, and everybody seems to know it now, but the raw bean that makes chocolate has every single mineral and vitamin in, that's available. Hundreds, almost hundreds of different trace minerals and vitamins from theobromine to unpronounceable things that have an incredible benefit on us. So much so, of course, the Aztecs, it was gold for them. But the benefit for us would be just to eat that. Obviously, it gives you a little bit of caffeine, but it's a little bit of natural caffeine, but makes you feel good. That's the theobromine and also helps with weight loss. And I found all of these things out along the way. And what I particularly loved at the time was that I realized that the word dessert backwards meant uh, spelt stressed. And so I thought, yeah, that's the thing is that people are eating too much sugar in these desserts, but the but the one sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater because chocolate is something that everybody loves. But at that time, which seems like an eternity ago in 2007, it seems like a lifetime ago, people hadn't really developed really premium, dark chocolate, single estate that wasn't particularly known. People weren't particularly... Uh, au fait with the raw food movement, definitely, you know, it was a super niche thing. So the idea was that I, de I developed using uh, coconut oil, raw virgin coconut oil and cacao, that we could make these chocolates that would be, that would taste incredible and would have all of these bioavailable health properties. And because at the time, you know, I think that even coconut oil wasn't that wasn't really wasn't even out there, so that that itself had other properties, antifungals and things like that. And I think I also used coconut water, which also wasn't available. So when we first when we first met um, and we tried that raw cacao that was dairy free, gluten free, milk free, sugar well, dairy, dairy sugar free, sugar free, um, processed free. It wasn't even processed. Yeah. Um, weight reducing it was just like one of these wow moments of going there's a huge opportunity for this so i managed to coerce a group of other more of let's say visionary people within the 
team, uh, Taru Wallman, Hamish, right. Hamish Kinborough, Kinborough from Universal McCann, uh, Lawrence Cow um, was one of our junior sort of planners, really to help drive this this exploration forward and to see where we could take it. And obviously you developed the product, you had it in these lumps. And, and these good ideas don't come about like that. Um, it comes about through conversations and we did various. And I think at the time you had, you had a name for it, which was Dr. Gay's Wonder Cacao. And as we went through some of these brainstorms, I remember we'd meet up maybe once a week, um, once every two weeks and do these work, little workshops at night, looking at the, 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 every time you were doing new iterations of the chocolate. I can't remember who had the thought of talking about, because we had L'Oreal as a client. And I think one of the, the sessions we had, we talked about, isn't it interesting how beauty, uh, the category, what you put inside your body isn't deemed to be as important as what you put on your face or on your body. And L'Oreal, our main client at the time, was all about um, inner beauty. But the reality is, it was what you put on your face. And we thought, well, surely there must be an opportunity if this, is, this product is such a health-inducing product. Maybe there's a different way to position it, not as a chocolate product or a cacao-based edible chocolate product, but as something that is more related to your actual inner beauty. And I think that's when the idea came where we ended up was with the idea of let's create a new category called edible beauty. And I think the line that we'd eventually ended up with without having a final name for the product, uh, for the brand, <clears throat> we came up with this, um, this line, which was eat beautiful. Now, the painful thing, having come up with this category of eat beautiful and edible beauty, you, you came up with this ingenious idea of the, how you dispense with it that it shouldn't be something that you have as a block, but it came, and I think you developed it somehow, I can't remember how you did it, but they came into like these little pods, the like little ice cubes, um, sort of cir yeah. little half circle yes, ice cubes. that's right, yeah. yeah. That you could, that's, you it, could pop out every morning. Yes, that it was something that I think part of the idea was that it was ritualized. Mm. I, I don't even know if we, I don't think we'd thought about, because I don't think it was a thing at the time where you could, get a subscription, mm -hmm. but it would be... It would have been perfect for it a would have subscription been the perfect pro thing. product because it was going to be a morning ritual exactly. that you have first thing in the morning. So the idea of having a ritual chocolate or cacao pod yeah. every morning. Like people take vitamins, yeah. but and it also because it has a bit of caffeine in it, you don't be having that late at night. So it would give you that morning kick. You'd also think, I've had all of those key vitamins and minerals. It's delicious. What's not to love? And then you build the marketing and the idea around that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think we, we got fairly far with it. We even started to look at sourcing the cacao from Ecuador. Someone we worked with was from Ecuador and had family there. And they'd looked at um, sourcing farms that could be able to supply the cacao. I think you'd started to put together sort of pricing um, and projections on sales. We'd had a conversation with the L'Oreal team about getting them to potentially sort of fund it as a, a venture, uh, invest in it as a, uh, with the agency and to bring the product to market. But here's the thing. So as with all, all good ideas, 
as nothing, no idea is anything other than an idea without execution. And although you had developed, let's say, a prototype, it didn't go any further than that um, for a couple of reasons. Yeah, and also to say that I, you know, because I think we've both just even just us chatting about this over the last few days, have put pieces of the jigsaw puzzle yeah. back into place for each of us, the bits of things that we've forgotten. So now you re now you remind me, oh yeah, Dr. Gay's Wonder Cacao. I think, oh yes, I was thinking of that, I think in my mind. And as soon as you said it, the pictures came up, which was that sort of aesthetic that was the traveling sideshow of the night, like kind of the Houdini type, yeah. you know, thing, because it seemed so magical. It seemed so new. And I liked that kind of idea of, I don't know, that kind of playful aesthetic, I suppose, rather than something that was preachy, because the whole raw, the actual niche of the raw food movement then, and maybe even now, was a bit preachy, a bit sort of holier than thou, you know, you're in, you're, you're, you're one of us. And was all a bit exclusive. So it was much more about a commodity, you know, commoditizing something that was playful and new. And, and yeah, so that reminded me when you said it, I said, oh yeah, I do remember that now. And also that I think you'd forgotten that I had written a business plan mm, yeah. along with mm. somebody who'd done this, this uh, MBA in, in McCann. So well, there's a lot more component parts in place than maybe each of us realized. It got to a stage of saying, okay, sourcing the product, business yeah. plan written, product tested. We did some consumer tests, yeah, got that. feedback. Yeah, it was positive. Started doing testing on names. Um, but I say with all ideas, it needs to have resolute commitment from everyone to be focused. And I think reflecting back on it and looking back and hearing now from you that all over London, there's um, posters for food, a food brand using the term edible, eat beautiful, which was our line. And the idea of edible beauty now is mainstream in the UK. Um, that you look back and regret and go, oh, why didn't we, why didn't we take it further? Why didn't we actually bring this to market? And when you look back on these things, you realize we didn't execute. We only took it so far. And I think when you go back to these, these moments in time, you think, well, why did that happen? And I think when I look at my own situation, and I suppose I was pivotal at driving it at McCann, my personal ambition to go to the US where I'm now obviously got in the way and I thought oh yeah I need to move to, move to New York and made the move and thought well I can carry on from New York but of course you get distracted and things drag so I think that ego driven decision of mine was a massive mistake if I look back and reflect on it um, but question is why even when I left why didn't it continue what do you think happened that didn't maintain that momentum? Well, I think for me, I, you know, when I look back, I just, it was a bit of a dream for me. I didn't fully know what was at play for you. I didn't know, I didn't ask questions. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't drive it because I probably my own self-esteem didn't think, I didn't have the push to say, you know, this is an amazing thing. I think for me, probably generally anyway, I probably have that imposter syndrome, which I think is super common. So I just remember thinking, wow, they like it. Amazing. You know, whoa, and the consumers like it. Great. Bizarre. It's almost like, whoa. And it just seems so obvious to me that I thought it's so obvious to me that this is a thing, that it's not a revolution. 
because it's so obvious. So it's not going to be groundbreaking because as a futurologist, I'm coming up with future ideas all the time. And because I know them, it's a little bit like when you know something, you think everybody else knows yeah. it. So I think there was part of that. I just didn't drive it, didn't ask questions, didn't know what was at play behind the scenes and how much involvement was happening. Didn't have the confidence to push it. And so when you, I, I just thought, I don't want to, you know, you've obviously got your life and you're doing your thing. And I just thought, oh, okay, thank well, well, thanks. Move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. just sort of fizzled away. It was, it, it was nothing, it was not like a, it was like a hard ending, wasn't it? It wasn't like a convers. there wasn't yeah. a conversation to say, listen, you know, things are, this is how things are for me. I'm going to move to New York. And, and, and I think also when you left, you, it was you. Just there was no traction after that. There was just nobody was, you were the driver and everybody else was just there for the ride, really. Mm. But it just sort of wrap this up that it, you know, I think about it and think, well, what we've learned from it is we'll never let a good idea go to waste, is one. Secondly, it was a gut feel that there was something in this. And I think listen to your gut is another one. Gut health. And your <laughs> gut health, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I think the other thing, one is 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 take action, just do it. You know, it's easy to say, but so many people have so many good ideas, and I've heard so many people say before oh, I had that idea, and I've seen rock account gone. Oh, huh, we had that idea ten years ago. Yeah, and I think it's a horrible thing to do and to sit back and and look back and think, oh, if only. It's so a I, horrible thing. So I would say to anyone that's listening to this or watching it is just. Don't be in a situation of going, if only. Take I, the action you need to take. Take that leap of faith and do it. See it through. Yeah. I mean, people, what I've noticed also is that people have ideas that are actually not that great, but push them through and somehow find a way. And there's always more room in the market for a thing mm -hmm. that you believe in. And I, I also agree. I just think just believe in, believe in your thing and do it. Even if it fails, you can say I gave it everything and I, I you know, I did it. And that's, yeah, you only get one go. Yeah. So, um, to 2020, from 2008, 2009, leaping forward to 2023, where have the years gone? Um, what um, have you been talking about while you're here in Austin at South by Southwest? So the title of my talk was Trend to Table. It's also the title of my book that's not quite out yet. And book out? maybe April, May, something mm -hmm. like that. It's always, and if I say that, it must probably be June. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, but yes, it's about why we eat what we eat. And rather than saying, and but that's the book, and what I talked about was I encapsulated some of that, but I also, because it's a trend briefing, I call it a trend briefing, one hour about what the future looks like. And so for me, what I show is all of the the things that feed into our behaviors, our aspirations, our social social value system, that food indicates that. And so I have to show that whole landscape, interiors, design, fashion, trends, belief, ecology, economy, all of that, and then kind of distill that and try and show some examples as a mood I suppose, like a mood board in a way, because you can't, I can't show someone, I can't paint the exact picture of 
seven years in advance. But what I can do is show the feeling of it through images. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. So can you give an example of what is affecting the food we eat today, oh what we're going to be eating? Oh my God, that's huge. Because it's, it's not that simple. It's such a it's such a journey of a every single time I do a trend briefing, rather than saying this thing is going to affect that thing. Since 2020, since COVID, I've I never had before that never looked back to look forward. But because our whole cultural landscape changed in 2020, I now do just show a little bit of this is what happened in the last 200 years, and I mean, that's one slide. This is what happened in the last 200 years to get us to COVID. These are the changes. This is where we're going because of COVID. It's all one slide. And show that our aspirations have changed, our relationships and our values have changed. And so because of that, this is the why. So what does this mean? And asking, you know, the questions that we're now asking were things we weren't asking before 2020, such as, what does it mean to be human? What's my value? I've got too much stuff. What happens if I have to start paying people to take my stuff away? What happens if stores, people can't sell you more stuff? Oh my God, now if you've got too much stuff and suddenly stores can't sell you stuff and you have to pay someone to take your stuff, what's the commodity that people are trading? What's our value? What do we do if all the jobs go to automation that's AI and digital and metaverse? You know, now with chat GPT, we mm -hmm. do, do we have to write anything? What do I, what can I do now? So underpinning all of it is basically what does it mean to be human? How do these, how does this new value system affect the commodity that used to be our value system, which perhaps was having a time of having money, having a job, having a better job? It's gone into knowledge and it's gone into kindness and comfort over competition. So now we're looking at a very different landscape for brands, for people, for everyone, where we are now valuing humanity and our relationship with the earth in a very, very different way, rather than a cerebral way that we go, oh, yes, we need to recycle. It's much more like the only thing I had during lockdown, the only thing I had during COVID was a walk in nature. The only thing that people could really relate to was out, the outdoors that was available, that was free, that was accessible in whatever capacity that was to people. So all of that really underpins the talk. Hmm. Someone posted on LinkedIn a few days ago and just said, what do you think the, what COVID did, what the pandemic did? And I, I just wrote, it tore us apart, but it brought us closer together and through tearing us apart. And I think there is that a sense of you saying it's, um, um, what does it mean to be human and comfort over competition and a stronger relationship with the earth? I think there is something. Although we, you could easily say, well, there's more polarization now than there's ever been. But I think that's a reaction to the media. I think people are, they do, they do strive and I think they desire connection more than before because it has been ripped away from them. And I think that's something that we're going to see. And maybe that's where, I mean, let's face it, food is the ultimate communal sort of oh, the, the table, the gathering place to come together. I talked about the table. Yeah. Myself. So I think that for me is going to be really interesting as to what happens and how we, I think there's going to be a reimagining of how people eat together. 
in the, fu- yeah. in the future. Yes, I talked about that. I talked about the table being mm-hmm. that became the hearth of the home because it became more than just a place to put your fruit bowl and have dinner. It became a classroom. It, beca- it became your office. It became your the actual interface between you and everybody else on Zoom. The table suddenly became much more than its component parts. And I talked about tablescape and I showed examples of how we're going to see this, the table decorated and embellished and changed up in a way that's going to become much more decorative, beautiful, functional, all of the above. Yeah, there's, there's so many things that it's affected, but I think one of the, one of the things that I'm aware, it's as though it's never happened. On the surface, you know, we're sitting in a cinema, nobody's wearing a mask. It's like a forgotten time. Oh, it's already gone. All of those lessons, all of that mm. community's kind of, oh, that. But underlying, there's not been a time of process and understanding about what's changed. People are changed. When we go through a time, we're processing it in real time. And we don't know that we're affected by it. But everybody is. And everyone's, so everyone's making different personal choices. I mean, we saw it. You, everybody knows somebody, you're one of them, who moved, who said, you know, I, could, I can work from anywhere. I don't need to be here because this is not working for me now. So I'm moving or I'm leaving my job or relationships splitting up or beginning. Things really shifted. There was a lot of shift during that time in a very physical way. And so I think that there, in food terms, that affects how we eat, how we come together, that sharing time. People were cooking who hadn't cooked for decades because they had to. People were, you know, there was a whole rise in people, uh, recipes that were replicas of takeout so that people could learn to make their favorite takeout at home. That, you know, there's just so many things happened in that different little food trends popped up that were specifically about making it yourself, like the whole mini cereal trend, the mini little pancakes and things that people wouldn't have had the time to be bothered with. Baking bread became like this essential thing. You know, lots of banana bread was like <laughs> the joke. And it, it gave rise to a whole other swathe of trends and they're still playing out. You know, one of the things that we often think is that trends and time it's a bit like okay now we're in 2023 so what's the new trend it's like well two days ago it was 2022 for example so it's not like and I think that's the same with the pandemic it's an ongoing process of unraveling and unfolding for our our sense of aspiration so what do you see as any sort of significant thing you could talk about that maybe when people aren't aware of that you see that's at play at the moment in terms of food consumption or food consumption habits? I think the food consumption habits perhaps are just an extension of, of things. It's nothing particularly defining that's come exactly, I don't think, from COVID per se. But what, well, actually, that's not, I think one of the things that people are healthier. Mm-hmm. People did the binging at the beginning. People were like, whoa, a month off work? I'm going to... And people just hit the bottle and ate junk. And then they just thought, wow, this might last and I might be in rehab. So I'm going to do something about that. And then people got healthy. A lot of people got really healthy and fit and did things that changed. So I think people generally got a bit healthier. I think there was a lot... Yeah, that that definitely was, was shifting. But in terms of 
one of the things that I think it that I look at as a kind of um, like a whole that started with COVID was about air. So we'd already started seeing some 3D printing. There was also, it's, it's, but it was small and it was in food, you know, the 3D printed food. It's kind of a gimmick. But one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that we started focusing on air in a completely different way. We'd never really thought about air before. It's just like pollution. That was the only thing about air. And then we put a mask on and said, this is my airspace. That's your airspace. Keep out. This is protected airspace. And then we air became a, a commodity that was cleaned, that was valued, that was contaminated, that was dangerous, that was life-threatening, that was health-giving, that was, you know, it, it just became, like, we, like we'd never considered it before, like we'd been not breathing it before. And so, and then we think about what, what uh, 3D printing does is that it puts space into, in between the food item. And what that does is that it means that companies can use less commodity but make it beautiful. It works great for waste, so you can have leftovers, put them in a 3D printer and create something that looks like a Michelin-star gourmet sculpture. But it's actually not that much food, but the mouth only recognises what's touching the outside edge. So if you think about like a lifesaver or a polo, the hole in the middle, we don't, we haven't got an awareness of that in the set, like there's a bit of food missing because it's the edges that touch our mouth. So it's the same with 3D printed food. We can create beautiful sculptural so food. So what would be an example of 3D printed food? Well, so many, I, I gave lots of visuals which were oh, amazing, yeah. but anything. But what one of the things that I gave an example of was a box of chocolates. They're all cubes. And there's nine chocolates. They're all just chocolate. Same ingredients, exactly the same. All cubes, so all the outside corners touch the mouth. But the texture within it, can, you can have a lot of air in that, a lot of space in that. And texture is the thing that defines what we like or don't like. So when we look at that box of chocolate, just the image, people gravitate towards a shape. So I think that's the, you know, that's what air has done. But to go forward with that, now the biggest race in Silicon Valley, one of the biggest races, is to create air protein that's viable for everyone. And air protein cleans the CO2 tick, can be, can, you, can be ord you can order 300 tonnes of air protein and within two hours they can deliver air it. Protein. Air protein. Air protein. They add microbes and... So when you say protein, would it be like chicken? Yes. But it's not really chicken? It's definitely not chicken, it's, so it's air air that's why it's so cool so you don't you have to eat air yes you can eat air so they they're developing air protein so many companies i mean just do you tons. mean protein that's got air in it no or? A protein that's made from the co2 they take the co2 they add microbes a couple of other clever things and what it looks like is the raw ingredient of something you could then turn into chicken beef fish whatever and it, it's like a, mal a malleable protein it can be anything you want it to be i've never heard about this so and that's, that's where the big investment is and so air's now big business mm -hmm. the other thing that's great business is that one of the things that air does it changes texture so we can take things like the avocado which has had a big boom over the last eight years or whatever 
people don't some people don't like it because it's slimy but also there's all kinds of other issues around water and drought you can take something like avocado puff it with air use a third of the amount people like it better who don't like slimy textures but also it uses less commodity companies make more money consumers get a new but product. that's avocado base products yes. not an avocado itself it's not an avocado itself yeah, no yeah. it's like you take a, take a scoop of avocado yeah, and then, puff it with air yeah, mm-hmm. so there's no other ingredient mm-hmm. but avocado mm-hmm. so you can start doing that with vegetables changing up the texture of things so air's got loads of possibility i mean that's a more simple one puffing things with doesn't air. sound very healthy air well no i mean it sounds like we're being ripped off by the food manufacturers. So that's what it sounds <laughs> well, yeah. like. Yeah. But you are anyway. I mean, when you say oh. ripped off, I mean, it's just like what you're willing to pay for yeah. is... Yeah, so we're paying, we're paying more for less, essentially. Well, yeah, I think that one of the things that we forget as consumers is that if it's advertised on TV, there's a big margin because they've got to pay for the adverts. And you're wanting to buy... You, you, Basically, what's advertised on TV or what you're going out to eat, that's entertainment. Don't think of it as nourishment because it's not. It's, that's entertainment. Nourishment is what your ancestors were eating. It's get in the ground, dig it up, cook it yourself or not. That's, the, that's food. And everything else, I mean, you know, we're all eating it, but it's good for us to know that all of that stuff is, you know, it's goodish, but it's not, not the real deal. You know. Only thing I would push back on there when you say if it's advertised on TV it's entertainment you don't see mushrooms apples tomatoes they don't know advertise on TV but you know the one that is here in America no avocados oh are they oh yeah Super Bowl wow Super Bowl ads for avocados from Mexico well that I did not know there you go that's amazing mm-hmm. talking of the avocado I know exactly so I wonder why they advertise the avocados. I've never thought about that. That's I'd have to look into that. That's interesting. I mean, why I, would you pay for a Super Bowl spot, which is that's you a know, big money? It's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's interesting, and maybe it's because, and I don't know, but you know, there, there are issues with avocados in terms of environmental issues with avocados, and maybe they're just if they're aware of that, then they'll realise once people latch onto that more. Maybe sales will go down, so they're getting in there where they can. I mean, it, you know, we we know. I mean, you've been in advertising. I work with all the biggest food brands. You know, it's business. It's business. I mean, everybody's got to do something to make money, and that's what they're doing. And it's not for them to. I mean, they're being trying to be as conscious as possible when the consumer's demanding it. But and it's also very diff- difficult for the consumer to really understand. It's why I've written my book, basically saying, look. This is this, just so you know, make some choices. You know, if you know, it, it's just not as bad as it's like, look, I know it's not good for me, but I'm having it anyway. But the worst thing is when you think, this is doing me good, I'm having it every day, and it's rubbish. Mm. As we've talked about some of the stuff in your cupboard. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's not go there. Um, environmental Working Group have created something that you told me about called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. Can you just explain to people what those are and why they should be aware of them? Yeah, so the Dirty Dozen is, it, it, it exists in every country in the world, pretty much. You can look online. The Dirty Dozen are the 12 most chemically sprayed crops selling this year. So, and the Clean 15 are the least chemically sprayed crops. 
That, so if you're not eating organic or can't afford to eat organic or for whatever reason can't get organic, the Clean 15... Well, the Clean 15 are non-organic. Oh, they're all non-organic. Oh, I see. I thought Clean 15 was organic. No, it's not. Because we have to assume that if they're organic, there's already checks and balances in place and they're not chemically sprayed. I see. Right, so the okay. Clean 15 is the conventional crops that are not that don't have any organic standard but they are they're not particularly sprayed so if you you know you can afford to if you have to make a choice you can afford to not buy so like avocados actually are one of those clean 15 in most countries in the dirty dozen typically it tends to be as it, it's strawberries here and stone fruit and kale. apples and lettuce or kale or yeah so that tends to be in most of the dirty dozen. They're the most chemically sprayed, heavy toxin crops. What and about so, blueberries? Um, well, I don't know what the I don't know what it is here. So if it's not on the list, or I don't know. Have to double check. I'll dozen, put it in the show notes. The dirt, yeah, the dirty yeah. dozen. So it's worth checking, and it changes. So if all you can afford to buy is the dirty dozen. In, who, which are organic buy the dirty dozen organic and, and all the other things which are clean 15 you have to worry about them, yeah. or don't eat them or only eat them in season because they're less sprayed when they're in season because they're spraying because it's just you know they're force growing and it's co- more complicated so it's eat there's more abundance of it in season so they tend to not need as much spraying um, or just yeah just don't eat them and then there's one other thing you mentioned that I thought was fascinating, the fact the the way that food, or I suppose, yeah, food science is going, that there is now insight and knowledge into which plants can grow next to each other that don't need yeah, pesticides. I think that's quite known, actually. Is it? Yeah, mm. permaculture. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty known. I think there was actually a TV series or a film about it or something where... What you have to do, and it's very difficult, you have to spend a couple of years, if you have land and you're growing food, you have to let it go to weed and you have to watch it become rife and you see all the weeds growing and it's infested with everything. And then when nature starts to take over, it starts to calibrate. But it's hard to watch it because you think that needs spraying, I need to get the roundup out or whatever it is that you spray, you know, just on your garden even. But even in your own garden, you can start growing plants. It's a real, it's it's kind of nature's wisdom. Just to sort of close out, anything you're optimistic about or anything you're really worried about on the horizon related to what we eat and food culture? I think what's really exciting right now is that we're in a critical time where we have knowledge and technology that we've never had before. And so for me, I'm always positive about the future because I think I think the thing that we meet, make the mistake of, we tend to look back with rose-tinted glasses and think, oh, wasn't it great? Yeah, because you were oblivious. So it didn't feel like we were in a critical time, not because we weren't. You know, when people think about 30 years ago, it was already critical, but we were just bobbing along, didn't really care. So I think that in terms of health and food, we're understanding the gut microbiome, our DNA, We're understanding the effect of food on us individually and how that will affect us. And I think that will increase and we'll get more information on that. And we'll have more technology to enable us to do, to eat cleaner, better for us personally. And I mean, for example, randomly, I'm allergic to kale. 
you know, it's the healthiest food on the, how can I, how, who knew? And that came up in a blood test that I had last year. It's like, wow. So, so I think that knowledge is becoming more available to us just on a basic, um, basic level. I, I, and so I think that's really exciting that we, we are now taking charge of our own health. We've outsourced our health for a long time saying, give me the magic bullet, fix me until then I'm going to eat crap and everything's fine. And we've, but we've kind of believed, we've believed that the food brands have our interests at heart, that the drug companies are looking after us. And I think that that's shifting and we're now saying we need to take responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look back at my days at McCann. It was really a case of working with big food companies to supply people with the, or get them to buy the foods that they don't necessarily need or shouldn't be eating, uh, that resulted in them getting to the point where you hand them over to the drug companies and big pharma to give them the, 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 the drugs. <laughs> the antidote. The antidote to the impact of the, what, the result of the food which is a um, pretty negative downward spiral. And, um, it, and it's the thing we've been in for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, we've been in this a long time. And it's what we do, we always do, we normalize now. It's what we do. We look back and think, can you believe we're smoking on aeroplanes? And then we go forward and think, there's no way I'm going to be eating you know, air protein. And there's no diet. You can make diamonds from air. And there's some incredible in innovation out there that you know, neuroscience is developing so much, we're just starting to understand the power of the human mind. All of this is phenomenal. And we think that seems like a long way out. But when we've normalized this sort of loop that we're in, which is... Oh. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, thanks for the overview. Um, good to um, go through the cathartic experience of offloading the... Um, the experience of um, Eat Beautiful and Edible Beauty um, and that, and also just to hear about the work that you're doing at the moment. So yeah, thanks very much. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much and see you next time.